Can I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? If you are using the one that was on your chair, it's on page 1426. Matthew chapter 5. I want to read to you the first seven verses. This, Matthew 5 um, and through to chapter 7, constitute the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous portions of Scripture and one of the most world-changing portions of Scripture. Um, the, a lot of the words in here are, are famous. A lot of people don't know necessarily why they're famous or where they come from. But um, that's where we are anyway, just to give you a sense of orientation. And uh, let's just read from verse 1 there. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've been spending a week on each of these blessing statements, the Beatitudes, because they're some of the most penetrating verses in the whole of Scripture. They really are um, like arrows that get right to the heart of things. And one of the things that they accomplish is that they are kind of like a test of what kind of faith you have. So many of us would call ourselves Christians or are thinking about what it means to be a Christian or looking at what Christianity is about. And by reading and understanding these statements, we're able to look at our own hearts and examine ourselves and understand what kind of a faith is it I have. You could think of it like this, that if you wanted to go up to any of the trees in one of the parks across the road and know how old it is, you could get, um, the way it's done is that you bore into the center of the tree. You only need a tiny piece of wood. You just need a hollow drill to bore all the way into the heart of it. And then you pull the thing out and you can count how many rings it has. And these Beatitudes are like that. They just pierce right into the center of things and they look at your, your heart. They, they examine what it is that's going on inside you. Like a biopsy as well. If you wanted to look at some shadow... Not that you would want to do it, but if someone was examining your body and they found something inside that looks a bit funny, they could take a little sliver of tissue, put it under a microscope, and, and know uh, what's going on in your body. Know whether the thing is good, bad, dangerous, or whatever. Now, I think that's what's happening when we read these statements. They have this penetrating quality that puts your heart under the microscope and examines what's going on inside you. And that is m perhaps most true for this one of all of them, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It asks what kind of faith you have, and it asks whether the earlier Beatitudes are true of you. I've been telling you that there's a kind of a progression to what's said in these, in these statements, that Jesus has been describing the heart of somebody who has genuinely come to faith, that they have recognized that they are spiritually bankrupt, which is what it means to be poor in spirit, that they've mourned over their sin that they've been humbled to the ground, they've become a meek person, and their appetites, their desires, their goals have been redirected. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. If those things aren't true of you, then, then you're not a Christian. And the same can be said of this one. And the reason why 
I want you to see that is that I think a lot of people think that these statements are are kind of behaviors that you're, you're being commanded to, to follow or to imitate. And that Jesus is saying, hey guys, I want you to go away and be this and be that and be the other. And that's not true at all. What is happening is he's actually just describing what happens in the person who has come to faith, who has been transformed by the power of God. So that these aren't so much a new set of laws, which is how a lot of people seem to, to read um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They're not a new set of laws. It's not a new command. It's not a kind of um, a new moral law for Jesus' followers to live by. Instead, what he's doing is he's trying to paint in the most vivid and extraordinary ways the characteristics and flavors of the kinds of people that he makes. And what he does inside lives when they are changed by his power, his gospel. The reason why I say that is because Christianity is not about modifying our behavior. And it's not about putting on a new suit. It's not about filling in a list of to-dos. And it's not about trying to accomplish some level that you arbitrarily set as being the level you need to attain in order to be righteous before God. Christianity is not that at all. The Bible tells us that Christianity is about you getting a new life, a new start. Paul puts it that if anyone is in Christ, which is what it means to be a Christian, if you've been put into Jesus, it's a a spiritual expression, a kind of mystical expression that you've been put into Christ. If anyone is in Christ, if you are a Christian... He's a new creation, he says. He's not been slightly altered. He's not been slightly modified. He's not been trained in a new way of life. He is a new creation. And if you are a new creation, then surely it follows that what you have become will find expression in the way you live. And that is going to look like these Beatitudes. You're going to be one of these kinds of people. And this is so true when we come to this one, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This new nature that I'm talking about, when Paul says that we, we become a new creation, he puts it in a slightly different way elsewhere in the Bible. He tells us in Galatians 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. This is what we've been praying about, singing about, um, exhorting one another towards in the worship time. That to come to Jesus and to become a Christian is actually just to die. Somehow, the life that you were living, the ambitions that you were pursuing, your passions and goals and loves, the things that thrilled you, all of it has to be laid before Christ. It's not necessarily that he wants to take everything away from you, but it's like Chloe was depicting. You put it all in a circle and you say, there it is, and then Jesus wants to put you to death in a sense. He wants to kill you. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's how Paul puts it. He said, I had a whole, I had my whole life planned out. I was going to be the best of the best, the religious elite. He was that already. He'd almost reached the pinnacle. And then he says, all of it was killed the moment I met Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. This is not a slight course correction. It's not a change in trajectory. This is a completely new start. I have been crucified with Christ. And then he goes on. It's no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. Every Christian ought to be able to say that. Every Christian ought to say, be able to say, the life that I now live is Christ living in me. That there's been such a profound change in me. Not that I'm perfect, not that I feel this way all of the time, but that at the core of my being, there is a new motivation, a new life, a new desire, and Christ is in me. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Now, if that's what it means to be a Christian then it follows that there ought to be a huge transformation in who you are. And part of that transformation is that you will embody these Beatitudes, and you'll embody this one in particular. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why do I say that? Because if the life of Christ is in you, then Christ is going to make you become more like him. And what is, I want us to just begin by thinking about this subject of mercy in relation to Jesus. And understand what mercy meant in his life and ministry so that we understand what it is that he's wanting to produce in us and what he does produce in us when we become his people. Mercy in the life of Jesus. Three things. So that he taught it, that he lived it, and that he's shown it to us. Let's begin with this first, that he taught mercy. You can see it all the way through um, so much of just what's implicit in the teachings of Jesus. But there are two parables that stand out and give us a kind of, they frame a definition for what we understand mercy to be. The first parable speaks about mercy. Both of them have this idea that mercy is a kind of pity. It's a kind of compassionate love for people who you have a power over, I suppose. But the one side of it is that it's a kind of forgiveness pity. And he tells a story in Matthew 18. We've looked at it a couple of times already in the months that we've been gathering. But he tells a story in Matthew 18 about a guy who is um, high up in the civil service of a kingdom. And he goes to a, to the, a master and he owes him what he says is 10,000 talents. Now, in today's terms, that was something like £2,460,900,000. So it's more money than you could ever dream of. Apparently, it was more money than was in circulation, 10,000 talents, than in, in the whole of the country at the time Jesus preached. So when he was preaching, I don't think it really matters how much he said. I think he was just plucking a number that was the biggest one that anyone could think of or imagine or comprehend and saying that was how much he owed the master. And he goes to the master and he, he begs for mercy and the master says, you can have it. And, and he just wipes the slate clean and he, he, he lets him off. And we can think of it this way. You think about these guys who have been um, dragged up before Parliament for leading these enormous banks into the brink of ruin in in Britain and almost bankrupting us, and they're being bailed out. And some of these CEOs, the, the press and a lot of campaigners have been baying for blood, haven't they, for the guys who got us into the trouble in the first place. These guys have got us into, into massive debt as a country in their stupidity. And he's one of those guys. And somehow he gets let off the hook, like one of these CEOs of the bank who goes home with his bonus at the end of the day, even though he's, he's, he's really messed things up. But then there's a twist in the story, because he goes home, this massively wealthy man in one sense, or at least he's, he's been let off the hook, and he goes home and he's got an employee in his residence, you could think of a nanny or a, a cleaner, and she owes him what was the equivalent of just around 4,700 pounds. And the way Jesus tells the story, he says that he throttles 
the servant and says, pay, pay me what you owe me. And soon enough, everyone says, this is not right. And so the news goes back to the authorities who let him off in the first place. And he gets, he gets condemned. And the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 18, 33, it says, shouldn't you have, shouldn't, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So he's talking there about mercy as a kind of forgiveness of wrong. The money speaks of debt. The debt of your sin. And he says the debt of your sin against God is so extraordinarily big that God in his forgiving you, that ought to then compel you to forgive others. Shouldn't you have mercy as I had mercy on you? That's one way that Jesus thinks and speaks and teaches about mercy as a kind of forgiveness. And we understand that, don't we? We use it in that way regularly. The other way comes across in another parable in Luke chapter 10 where he tells this famous story, I'm guessing most of you have heard it, of the Good Samaritan, where a lawyer has come to Jesus and said, he's asked him the question about what the great commandment is and how that commandment is to love others and love your neighbor. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus begins to answer the question by telling a story. And he tells a story about a nice middle-class white British guy going down to Brixton. No, he doesn't, but I'm just trying to put it in modern terms for you. And he goes down to Brixton to the ritzy cinema, watches a movie late one night, and he's heading back through Brixton, and he gets jumped and beaten up and attacked and dragged into an alleyway and bloodied and robbed. Now, this is not an unlikely scenario, is it, in many parts of London? It's, um, I was mugged once, a friend of mine was mugged, and it's not uncommon. So he gets mugged, and then... A couple of guys walk past. I'm going to give you three examples. Jesus gives two. I'm not saying I'm improving on his version. I just want you to try and understand this. A doctor comes past and he says, uh, he sees him in the alleyway and he says, I'm not on duty. If I intervene now, I'm going to be the responsible person here. Now my wife's smiling because she refuses to let airlines know that she's a doctor whenever we fly, just in case there's one of those calls that comes on the tannoy. And he walks past. And then a pastor comes down the street, sees him in the alleyway, and walks past. And then a UKIP candidate walk, comes down the alleyway and sees him there, lying there. And he, he thinks, it's, I can't be seen here. I can't stay around here. Everyone knows what I stand for. And so he runs off and, and leaves him in the alleyway. And finally, a Muslim kid from the Cowley estate just on Brixton Road, walks past the guy, has mercy on him, picks him up, starts cleaning him up, gets him on the 436 bus, takes him up into town and makes sure that he's seen to and tended to and cared for. Now, that's how Jesus kind of tells a story because he talks about the compassion of a Samaritan. These guys were not in any way part of the fold. They were not Christians. They were something else altogether. And he says, that is what love is. And then the key verse comes in verse 37. He says, well, he asks the question, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? And they answer, the one who showed him mercy. So we have these two ideas of what mercy is. It's forgiveness and it's compassion. It's this pity that's born out of being able to see the other person and see things from their perspective. In terms of this forgiveness, by the way, it's not a kind of, the kind of tolerance that we know in modern society. 
I think a lot of people want to think that we can just let each other off the hook by minimizing what evil is. Or if we're just easygoing people. There are, kinds, there are certain kinds of people who you can just insult to their face and they're just like, oh, don't worry, man, it's cool, bro. And they're just easygoing. It's not that at all. We know it because the Bible says that God is merciful and we know that God is not easygoing. Have you read the Bible lately? He's not easygoing. So his mercy is not because he doesn't have justice and righteousness. In fact, in some ways, it seems to be in spite of those things. So when we're talking about forgiveness, pity is mercy. We're talking about something that, that overcomes righteous anger and sees things from the other person's point of view and wants to, to love them and wants to have pity on them. And when we're thinking about it as compassion, we're not talking here about a kind of... You know, you see a lot that goes under the name of compassion these days, and often it can just be... A lot of things that, that are really masquerading, a kind of condescension, where wealthy people just want to sort of empty their change into the charity box to help the poor people. Or you see a kind of white guilt where people are, are giving their lives to campaign for issues, not out of love, but because they just feel like guilty for being wealthy and for being Western and all these things. And it's not a kind of attempt to be self-righteous in the sense that you are making yourself something better by by loving the, the needy. It's none of those things. What we're talking about here, when we're talking about mercy as compassion, is something that flows out of the heart. And this is what Jesus taught. He said, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what mercy looks like. This is what love looks like. And he didn't just teach it. Jesus also lived it. You can see this happening so often through the Gospels that people come to him and, and regularly the prayer is, have mercy on me. And it seems that whenever somebody asks Jesus for mercy, he never denies them. The same is true for us, isn't it? There's a passage in Matthew 10 where it says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching. And it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I think that, that is an extraordinary way of describing London today. When you think about the needs of this city, I think people are harassed and helpless. And it provokes us to ask, if Jesus were walking our streets, how would his mercy find expression? What would he see? When he saw the newly arrived immigrant family struggling to find a place to live, struggling to find jobs, wouldn't he see them as harassed and helpless? When he sees the single mum who's in debt with credit cards and unable to deal with the bailiffs and the, the debt collectors, wouldn't he see people who are harassed and helpless? If he walked through St. Thomas's up the road, he wouldn't just see patients. He would see sick people. He would see souls. He would see people who are grieving and broken and saddened by the fact that their, their bodies aren't working. And he would see people who are harassed and helpless. If he walked through the city of London at rush hour, you see all these guys in their suits who've left the house before it was light and are going to be home after it's dark, who don't see their kids except maybe at weekends if they're not playing golf, and you see people who are harassed and helpless. They don't know why they're even doing what they're doing a lot of the time. 
He'd see harassed and helpless people at every level of society. Christ didn't just teach mercy. He lived it. And wherever he went, people's lives were touched by it. And if you're a Christian, your life has been touched by this. When Jesus was reading in the synagogue that famous passage in Isaiah 61 that would describe his ministry, I think if we're honest, we'll see the ways that this has affected us. He says that he had come to bind up the brokenhearted. This is his mercy. That though we've experienced heartbreak in life, Jesus wants to fix our hearts. We might have had the heartbreak of bad parenting or dads who, didn't, who weren't around or all kinds of things, and he wants to fix our hearts. We have the heartbreak of our own sin and the things that we have done. He wants to fix our hearts. That is Christ's mercy. It says that he'd come to proclaim liberty to the captives. I think many people are so aware of the fact that even though they want to change, they can't change. They can't change the way they think. They can't change the way they act. They can't change the way they feel. They feel imprisoned even though they're free. And the gospel is that in Christ, in his mercy, he has come to free us. He comes to liberate. And so many of us who've know, who know Jesus have experienced this. Liberty, freedom. It says he'd come to comfort all who mourn. Christ didn't just teach mercy. He wasn't a theoretician. He has come to touch lives and he has touched your life. And if you're a Christian, you know this. That the mercy of Christ isn't just something that you tasted once a long time ago on the day when you first prayed that you might become a Christian, that Christ might come into your life. It's something that you taste regularly, even every day, even every moment of every day. The Bible tells us that Jesus has become a merciful and faithful high priest, which means this. That when you come to him with your mess, not just the mess that you did once upon a time before you become a Christian, but the mess that you're in even now. When you come to him, Christ is your lawyer. He's your advocate. He's your priest before the Father. And he, being a merciful and faithful high priest, he does a few things. The first thing he does is he presents his blood to the Father. And he says, this blood covers all sin. And then He answers every accusation that's leveled against you by Satan. Satan knows everything, or at least he and his minions know all the stuff that you've done wrong. And they start accusing and directing and condemning and saying, listen God, look what he's done. He doesn't deserve to be your child. And Jesus can answer every single accusation and say it's been paid for, it's been paid for, it's been paid for. And then he calls the Father to acquit you of your wrong. And this isn't something just happened once upon a time in your life. The grace of God is past, present, and future. Which is why I read that passage right at the beginning where it said in Lamentations 3 that the the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is a kind of life verse for me. To know that as bad as I can mess things up, God's mercies are fresh and new every morning. 
Now the reason why I want you to understand all of this about Jesus is that the implication for us in reading this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, is that Christ doesn't just want it to be true of him, he wants it to be true of you also. Paul says that we comfort others with the comfort that we've received, which means that there is a flow through. That when you become a Christian and you taste something of the mercy of God, God wants to change your heart so that you become a merciful person. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells the Christians to be imitators of God. When you meet people who are in need, who are hurt, who are sad, who are grieving, who are guilty... Do people meet something of Jesus in you? Do they encounter his mercy when, when they meet you? When people have wronged you personally, do they meet Jesus in his grace, in his kindness, when they meet you? Could you say with Jesus that your life mission like that in Isaiah 61, is to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn, to replace ashes for a, a crown so that people are being bound up, transformed, healed when they meet you. Now friends, I want to just think about this then with a little more pointedness in your life. First negatively and then positively. What happens when you fail to be a merciful person. Firstly, in yourself, when we lack mercy, our lives turn in on themselves, like an ingrown nail. You become a little bit more lonely, a little bit more bitter. It's so fascinating that in, in Matthew 18, when Jesus told that parable about the rich, or sorry, not the rich guy, the guy who was forgiven the enormous debt and when he's pulled up to be judged for his crime of demanding that tiny debt from the other servant, it says that the master, who was at the top, he says he, he condemned him to be delivered to the jailers or the torturers. I think it says something about the pain of what happens to a person when they hold on to, when they, they, they can no longer show pity or compassion towards other people whether it's in unforgiveness or whether it's in walking past the needs that are all around you. You become a tortured soul. It also then affects your relationships with others, that instead of making friends, you will make enemies. And there is a principle here, reaping what you sow, that if we are not compassionate, merciful, pitiful, not pitiful people, no, people who are able to extend pity, it will have an effect on our relationship to other people. That the friends we have around us are just the people who give something to us, not people who we can bless and help. But most importantly, it's going to have an effect on your relationship with God. A person who can't extend mercy to others is somebody who has become spiritually proud, someone who has become spiritually self-righteous, and whose life ultimately will have a hollow ring to it. Do you remember how Paul talked about love in 1 Corinthians 13? And he says, in effect, if I was the most extraordinary Christian on the surface, 
but I didn't have love, it would all just be completely empty. I'd be like an Easter egg, just, just a shell. And he says it in, in one verse, he says, if I give away all I have, if I appear to be the most merciful, kind person in the world, but he says, I don't, and I deliver up my body to be burned, I'm a, mer- I'm a martyr for Christ. He says, but I haven't love, I gain nothing. And I think he's talking about something which resonates with this theme, that if you're a person whose life ultimately lacks this love and compassion and mercy for others, you are living a hollow life. What is it that you're living for? But let me also just paint this for you positively. Jesus said that there's a blessing here. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What happens when your life is characterized by this mercy? Firstly, in yourself. There is an intrinsic value to being a merciful person like Jesus. I, found, I came across a couple of proverbs in, in one of the commentators who pulled them out of the King James Version, which just somehow seems more vivid on this subject. One of them said, The merciful man doeth good to his own soul. Somehow your soul is enriched when you learn how to be a merciful, merciful person, extending the love of God to others. It puts it out in a slightly different way elsewhere. It says, He that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Blessed, it means happy. Blessed are the merciful. Merciful people experience just the intrinsic value. We need to get some WD-40 on that door, don't we, sometimes? <laughs> Sorry, Julie, don't mean to embarrass you. It's not your fault. <laughs> he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. There is an intrinsic value in living a life that, that is enlarged, where your heart is enlarged to take in the needs and the, the perspective of other people who are in trouble, and where you can have pity on, on people who need pity. Also, in terms of your relationship with other people, when he says that you'll receive mercy, surely there's something of the reciprocal nature of this in terms of your relationship with others. You make friends through having a bigger heart. I think lonely people are often the people who are most turned in on themselves, unable to look at the needs of those around them because all they look at are their own needs. Unable to love other people, unable to see grief around them, mourning around them because all they do is wallow in their own self-pity. Whereas when you become a merciful person, God gives you a big heart for those around you and you find relationships become easier. You have friends, you have love. And when you are in need of mercy, there will be people around you to give it to you. And we will all have need of it at times, whether it's when you hit sickness, when you hit financial trouble, or when you feel like you've done wrong and you need somebody to tell you words of comfort from the gospel. But most importantly of all, Think about our relationship with God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Jesus says. Now, I need to clarify that this is not, it can't mean a kind of conditional thing where God's looking around and he's measuring you up on his clipboard to see if you are a merciful person. And if you are, then he'll be merciful to you. And I say it can't mean that for a couple of reasons. One is that it makes It would make God's mercy a transactional thing, something that you could earn, which in a sense is a denial of what mercy is in the first place. 
If God was looking at you and saying, he's worthy of my mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. That's how A.W. Pink puts it. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain justice. In other words, they've attained righteousness for themselves. And so God's just going to be, he's going to give them what they deserve, which is justice. It can't mean that, and it would undermine the very character of God. The Bible tells us that it was while we were dead in our sins that, that God sent his son for us. It says that he loved us first. God is always the first mover. He is always the initiator. It's never the case that he looks at us to check whether we're worthy of his kindness and his love and his mercy. He always pours it on us lavishly as the first mover, and then that changes our hearts. So we're not talking about his... Something that is conditional. If you're merciful, you'll receive it. No. He's just describing a reality. That it's merciful people who are those who are receiving mercy from God. And it's their receiving mercy from God that turns them into these merciful people. And this is how it works. That if you are a Christian, you are somebody who when you read the words of Jesus, who is hanging there on the cross, said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. You know that he's talking about you. To be a Christian is to know that you are one of the sinners that he spoke about when he poured out his blood on the cross. And that in coming to Jesus for his mercy, you have received the life of Christ in you, what we're talking about. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ in me. And then, this Christ-like transformation takes place in your heart. Sometimes very, very slowly. Sometimes dramatically. But there, is, there has to be change. One of the most striking examples of this in the Bible is in Acts 6 and 7, where we read the story of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr in the church. He was pulled up by the religious authorities and stoned because he thought he was blaspheming against the temple. And when he's being stoned, he has a vision of Christ. And at the very moment, he's, he's, he's feeling the impact of rocks being pelted at his head, cracking his skull, drawing blood, causing bruises. Gradually, life is sap, sip, just seeping out of him. But his last words before he dies are these. He says, Lord... Do not hold this sin against them. That's what I'm talking about here. That when a person has truly come to faith in Jesus, they become like Jesus. Sometimes in small incremental ways, sometimes dramatically, but Jesus is forming himself in you. He's making you more like him. Stephen is perhaps the most striking example of Christ-like mercy in the New Testament. That he even echoes the very words of Jesus on the cross in his dying breath, just as Jesus did. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And so I simply want to ask, as we close today, what about you? Is this life of Christ being formed in you? Do you, when you look at your own heart, do you see that Christ has given you a compassion and a mercy and a love and a pity for people who need it. If not, then it is questionable whether Christ has ever moved in your heart. 
But if he is, let's foster that and encourage that and cry out for it and pray for it, that God would cause us to be these people. We're going to need it, you know, in the years to come. One thing that you can think of a church as being is, is like a hospital. And that as people come in to be part of this church, the first thing that they should meet with is mercy. Not judgment, not being ostracized, not being prejudged on the basis of how they look or how they dress or any of these things. They should encounter mercy when they come into the church of Jesus Christ. Because Christ's people, of all people on the earth, have tasted mercy. That can't be said of people who follow other religions. There's no mercy in Islam. There's no mercy in Buddhism. The mercy of Jesus is free. It's upfront. It's the first thing you taste when you become a Christian. And Christ's people should be the most merciful people on the planet. Friends, let's cry out that God would do that in us. And that this Christ-likeness would be formed in us. And that we would be individuals and a church where people would encounter the love and mercy of Christ whenever they come here.